The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. I'm Charlie Reitman. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at uh, the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Hi, my name is Jay Khanna. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. I uh, work for Johns Hopkins and I'm based in Bethesda, Maryland uh, near the Washington DC region. And today we're gonna be talking to you all about how to manage and avoid complications relating to osteoporotic uh, bone and fixation in the osteoporotic spine. And uh, Charlie, uh, you're gonna start off, I think, by talking to us about how you like to do some of the preoperative planning for these patients that may have osteoporosis. Yeah, so I think clearly you have certain patients, certainly the elderly, um, female, um, certain medications, sedentary people that, that you're concerned about low bone density, so DEXA is an obvious choice, but there's other important things, nutritional status, obesity I think is, is important. They're gonna be malnourished a lot of times, sedentary and osteoporotic, deceptively so, and can put a lot of stress on the construct. Um, nutritional status, and then I think the concept of prehab, um, you know, rehabilitating the patient to their optimal, especially if you're gonna be doing implantation surgery, um, address any flexion contractures and strength deficits to optimize the, the post-operative process of recovery. What are your thoughts on uh, DEXA scores? And uh, you know, the patients that I've found that I have the most trouble with are patients that, just like you said, are obese, uh, and yet they're osteoporotic. Um, and so could you speak a bit about uh, any particular numbers people should keep in mind who don't have yeah. as much experience um, and how to handle the obese osteoporotic patient? So that's a, a good question. Um, I, you know, I mean, the DEXA is minus one to two, minus 2.5 is, is osteopenic, so what does that mean? Clearly anybody who's in the minus two and higher, I send them to an endocrinologist. It's that middle range around minus 1.5, you know, how are they gonna behave? So I think the DEXA is, it's a little deceptive. You know, you'd think it's not really just a line in the sand, like this person's gonna do okay, and if it's a point lower, they're not. So other factors, you know, you look at the size of the pedicles, just the quality of the bone appearing, their sagittal alignment, obesity, whatever the sort of stress you think they're gonna put on the implants, you know, small one level, two level reconstructions, maybe you'll have a, a little more leniency than, um, than longer reconstructions. But for me, if anybody gets much below minus 1.5, or if they've had a history of fracture, elderly, postmenopausal female, I'll usually just get an endocrinologist involved to help me. Great. And uh, one thing I neglect to mention is smoking. Nobody will have a fusion if they, unless they stop smoking, because okay. that has a lot of um, negative consequences on bone too. One more thing with regard to the bone density is Forteo. And uh, over the last several years, I've been sending more patients out for Forteo. Uh, I believe it's off-label for preparation preoperatively. Um, so I have this done through the endocrinologist, discussed that with the patient, and I've noticed that the bone quality can change substantially in about six to nine months uh, with preoperative foretail. So just another strategy I think people can keep, keep in mind uh, for patients with severe osteoporosis who don't need urgent surgery. Uh, I agree, and sometimes just the main thing is you can't be in a hurry. Yeah. The patients want surgery now, yeah. and you, know, you just gotta wait your six, nine months, sometimes a year. Yeah. And then the, uh, one area that I've gotten burned with some of the bigger cases that are in patients that are heavy, uh, osteoporotic, and need big surgery is malnutrition, like you mentioned. 
Uh, and so often I'll have the patients get preoperative nutrition consults uh, to check their albumin and prealbumin, really try to pump them up above four for albumin and in the 15-20 range for prealbumin. Uh, and I often ask them to take Greek yogurt. Uh, if they aren't going to get insured, I just say Greek yogurt, eight ounces, twice a day, and that'll help kind of pump them up while they're waiting. Yeah, I think that's, I agree with yeah. all that. Great. So the uh, next topic I think uh, we're going to discuss um, is preoperative planning uh, with regard to the actual surgery and the strategies for fixation. Uh, and I'll talk a bit about that and my thoughts. Uh, so the factors that we'd like to consider are the number of levels, uh, the types of screws, uh, and uh, pelvic fixation or not. And I think there's a couple different ways that I like to think about uh, for these patients. One is really to minimize the intervention. So if I have a patient who has a degenerative scoliosis and is osteoporotic and they have unilateral leg pain, meaning can I get away with just a foraminotomy? And that's always nice. Um, the other is to maximize the intervention. If you have a patient who has a lumbar degenerative curve and you stop or I stop at uh, L1 or L2, I think there's a higher chance of PJK, especially in somebody who's osteoporotic, and I may have a lower threshold to go up to T11. So really thinking about the number of levels, uh, I put a lot of thought into. I factor in the type of curve that they have, how old they are, how much surgery they can tolerate, um, and their overall sagittal and coronal uh, alignment. And as we were talking about earlier, uh, before the session, uh, I learned the hard way not to overcorrect uh, over the years. And initially, if I had a patient who came in who was 70 years old and was becoming kyphotic, I thought the best thing I could do was improve their sagittal alignment and really bring them back. And I think it kind of acts as a springboard where you take a patient who's kyphotic and the natural tendency is to want to bring them back into lower doses and you may uh, overcorrect and the patient may want to kind of spring back uh, in the other direction. And then pelvic fixation I think is very important. Uh, anytime I go above L2, uh, I always go down to the pelvis and ilium and I tend to use S2AI screws uh, described by Cal Cabesh, uh, one of my partners in Baltimore. Uh, and have a very low threshold for going into the pelvis uh, and ilium. And then in those patients, you know, once you go above L2, there, I think there's a need to go to the pelvis. And once you go to the pelvis and you're above L2, there's also a need to give good anterior column support. Uh, and so if I can, I bring those patients back also for a staged ALIF at uh, L5-S1. Yeah, so I agree very strongly with the, the anterior component. I really think it helps correct sagittal alignment, sometimes that's all you need. And a lot of times I'll start anteriorly because it can really set the, mm. the sagittal um, alignment. And I think usually five, one, four, five, really make sure because my failures <coughs> distally are at the lumbosacral junction. It's usually non-union rod breakage. Right. Um, not so much, you know, screw pull out and that sort of thing. And then again, pelvis is very important. Um, and just, I think you, you sort of implied it, but the main thing is you want to really establish the goals. With a good history, you know, is the problem radiculopathy, is it truly a deformity problem where they have deformity-related pain? If they do and you don't accomplish the goals of correcting the deformity, you're not going to make the patient better and you do not want to reoperate on these patients. Okay. So addressing, you know, in somebody who's frail, actually the biggest disservice you can do to them is bring them back to the OR two or three times with smaller procedures. It's really get it all done once and make the right decision and make sure you accomplish the goals for that specific patient, which I think is 
you know, maybe saying what you said in a little different way. Yeah, great points. I also have been using uh, quad rods more frequently in the osteoporotic patients where I'm kind of almost betting against myself uh, that the fusion may not occur with the poor quality bones. If I go T11 to pelvis in somebody with poor quality bone, I think my options are not to do it, uh, take iliac crest, which may be poor quality bone, use BMP, which is off-label in many cases, uh, or go to a quad rod construct, or go multi-level anterior. And I've been doing more quad rods uh, where I put outrigger rods uh, throughout the lumbar spine from about L2 or L1 down to the sacrum. Uh, and so I feel like I have a lower chance of a rod breakage, or at least have supplemental rods. Uh, I don't take the quad rod all the way up to the thoracic spine, so I can have some flexibility there where the chance of rod breakage is a little bit less, and I can have kind of a transition zone. Uh, and my buddy and colleague, Frank Shen at UVA, has written a nice uh, paper recently on a uh, independent construct quad rod technique where he places the pedicle screws medial, straight, medial, straight, medial, straight, so that the screws can kind of be out-rigged, uh, and you can have two independent constructs going all the way down uh, the spine, which is a really novel technique. And I wonder what you think about uh, multiple rod constructs. Yeah, so that kind of brings us into implants in, in general. Um, rods are certainly part of the construct. I think, you know, there was a time when I was using, I was very enthusiastic about the different materials and the larger diameter rods. And actually in this patient population, I've gone just the, the opposite. I want, I think, as you implied, a, a little more flexible rod, a little more forgiving. Um, and especially towards the top of the construct. And then down in the lower lumbar spine, which is where I get my, my implant failure, I'll use um, the, the four rods is, is a good concept or, or the anterior posterior or BMP. Those are all good strategies uh, to, and I understand BMP is off label, but there's several papers written now showing maybe the value and efficacy of, of BMP, although it's still off label. Um, and then proximally, the failure tends to be more pull-out, fracture, so there are different strategies up there, maybe cement um, and, uh, and, you know, how you uh, underbending the rod, making sure that the implants are low on the vertebral body and not putting too much stress on that top end plate. I do the exact same thing, and up at the top, I follow Cal Cabasha's rules. Again, my partner, who's written a lot on this topic, where I will cement in the proximal screws. So if I go T11 to pelvis, I'll do a uh, vertebroplasty at T11, place the screws there, and then I'll do a prophylactic vertebroplasty at the level above at T10 to prevent the pull out there. And then Cal has also taught me to angle the proximal most screws downward. So the T11 screws, if those are my most proximal screws, I'll fight really hard against the soft tissues to get up very proximal on the T11 pedicles and angle those screws downward uh, so that they have a, a better chance of hooking the bone as opposed to pulling out. Uh, and that's really helped me quite a bit, along with over-contouring the top rods. So I think we, in summary, uh, covered a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of this applies to deformity. Most of these constructs are going to be short, short constructs. But I think you know, making sure you address the pre-operative principles, making sure your patient's ready for surgery, making sure you're addressing their goals, um, trying to eliminate complications, eliminating multiple surgeries, and and being um, critical with your pre-op planning and, and placement of your implants. Great summary. Mm -hmm.